Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Reed's listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction, and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. Hey, y'all, before I read this story to you today, a couple of announcements, okay? First, this is the final episode of season three. I can hardly believe it. And I think this has been our best season so far. And we are certainly planning more for you very soon. Interpret that how you will. In the meantime, if you want to connect with other listeners of the show and talk about the episodes, you can do that by joining the LeVar Burton Reads community on Facebook. And, of course, you know that you can also review the show in Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to leave me a suggestion for authors or stories that you'd like to hear. Now... I've got some incredibly exciting news about LeVar Burton Reads Live, the live tour that I'm doing with the podcast. And I want to tell you a bit about some of the authors that I am honored to feature on the tour. Are you ready? This Halloween, our opening night in Washington, D.C., reading an appropriately dark and stormy story by the Pulitzer Prize winning author Edward P. Jones, y'all who will also join me on stage for an interview and a Q&A to follow. And I'm also thrilled to be visiting Brooklyn in the house and reading a story by the great speculative fiction author N.K. Jemison, who's been blowing up the last few years, winning Hugo Awards left, right, and center, and I cannot wait to sit down with her. And if you liked Ken Liu's story, The Paper Menagerie, and some of you, many of you, indicated that you did, I understand there were tears involved for some. I'm happy to announce that Ken Liu will be joining me at my Boston tour date, and I will read another fantastic story of his. Plus, I'll be visiting Toronto as part of the Hot Docs Festival, and then I'll be going on to Austin, to Dallas, to the Philadelphia area, and Atlanta. It is such a good time, y'all, and it is all kicking off in less than a month. I'll do author interviews. We'll have live music, some amazing stories. You can visit LeVarBurtonPodcast.com slash tour for tickets and updates. That's LeVarBurtonPodcast.com slash tour. Now, let's get to our story. Today, I want to pay tribute to someone who passed away this past May of This year, a real giant of the science fiction universe, Mr. Gardner Dezois. 
He was a writer and founding editor of the year's best science fiction, and he also edited Asimov's science fiction magazine for two decades. I'll have more thoughts on Gardner on the other side of the story, but for now, just know that I am honored to read one of his stories. This one was awarded the Nebula in 1984, originally published in Omni. Does anybody else remember Omni? Oh, the 80s, they were so great. It was the anchor story for his collection entitled Morning Child and Other Stories. Gardner liked short stories for their efficiency, for quick and skillful drawing. And I don't want to give too much away on this one. I think you should just experience it and let him take you on this journey. So, if you're ready, let's take a deep breath. This one's for Gardner. Let's begin. Morning Child by Gardner Duzois. The old house had been hit by something sometime during the war and mashed nearly flat. The front was caved in as though crushed by a giant fist. Wood pulped and splintered, beams protruding at odd angles like broken fingers. The second floor collapsed onto the remnants of the first. The rubble of a chimney covered everything with a red mortar blanket. On the right, a gaping hole cross-sectioned the ruins, laying bare all the strata of fused stone and plaster and charred wood, everything hurling back on itself like the lips of a gangrenous wound. Weeds had swarmed up the low hillside from the road and swept over the house, wrapping the ruins in wildflowers and grapevines, softening the edges of destruction with green. Williams brought John here almost every day. They had lived here once, in this house many years ago, and although John's memory of that time was dim, the place seemed to have pleasant associations for him, in spite of its ruined condition. John was at his happiest here, and would play contentedly with sticks and pebbles on the shattered stone steps, or go whooping through the tangled weeds that had turned the lawn into a jungle, or play stock in ominous circles around Williams, while Williams worked at filling his bags with blueberries, daylilies, Indian potatoes, dandelions, and other edible plants and roots. Even Williams took a bittersweet pleasure in visiting the ruins, although coming here stirred memories that he would rather have left undisturbed. There was a pleasant melancholy to the spot and something oddly soothing about the mixture of mossy old stone and tender new green a reminder of the inevitability of cycles. Life in death. Death in life. 
John erupted out of the tall weeds and ran laughing to where William stood with the foraging bags. I've been fighting dinosaurs, John said. Great big ones. William smiled crookedly and said, That's good. He reached down and rumpled John's hair. They stood there for a second. John, panting like a dog from all the running he'd been doing, his eyes bright. Williams, letting his touch linger on the small, tousled head. At this time of the morning, John seemed always in motion, motion so continuous that it gave nearly the illusion of rest, like a stream of water that looks solid until something makes it momentarily sputter and stop. This early in the day, John rarely stopped. When he did, as now, he seemed to freeze solid, his face startled and intent, as though he were listening to sounds that no one else could hear. At such times, Williams would study him with painful intensity, trying to see himself in him, sometimes succeeding, sometimes failing, and wondering which hurt more and why. Sighing, Williams took his hand away. The sun was getting high, and they'd better be heading back to camp if they wanted to be there at the right time for the heavier chores. Slowly, Williams bent over and picked up the foraging bags, grunting a little at their weight as he settled them across his shoulder. They had done very well for themselves this morning. Come on now, John, Williams said. Time to go. And started off, limping a bit more than usual under the extra weight. John, trotting alongside, his short legs pumping, seemed to notice. Can I help you carry the bags? John said eagerly. Can I? I'm big enough. Williams smiled at him and shook his head. Not yet, John, he said. A little bit later, maybe. They passed out of the cool shadow of the ruined house and began to hike back to camp along the deserted highway. The sun was baking down now from out of a cloudless sky and heat bugs began to chirrup somewhere producing a harsh and metallic stridulation that sounded amazingly like a buzzsaw. There were no other sounds besides the soughing of wind through tall grass and wild wheat, the tossing and whispering of trees, and the shrill piping of John's voice. Weeds had thrust up through the macadam, Tiny green fingers that had cracked and buckled the road's surface chopped it up into lopsided blocks. Another few years and there would be no road here, only a faint track in the undergrowth. And then, not even that. Time would erase everything, burying it beneath new trees, gradually building new hills, laying down a fresh landscape to cover the old. 
Already grass and vetch had nibbled away the corners of the sharper curves, and the wind had drifted topsoil onto the road. There were saplings now, in some places, growing green and shivering in the middle of the highway, negating the faded signs that pointed to distances and towns. John ran ahead, found a rock to throw, ran back, circling around Williams as though on an invisible tether. They walked in the middle of the road, John pretending that the faded white line was a tightrope, waving his arms for balance, shouting warnings to himself about the abyss creatures who would gobble him up if he should misstep and fall. Williams maintained a steady pace, not hurrying, the epitome of the ramrod-straight old man. His snow-white hair gleaming in the sunlight, a bush knife at his belt, an old Winchester 3030 slung across his back, although he no longer believed that they'd need it. They weren't the only people left in the world, he knew, however much it felt like it sometimes. But this region had been emptied of its population years ago. And since he and John had returned this way on their long journey up from the south, they had seen no one else at all. No one would find them here. There were traces of buildings along the way now, all that was left of a small country town. The burnt-out spine of a roof, ridge meshed with weeds, gaping stone foundations like battlements for dwarves, a ruined water faucet clogged with spiderwebs, a shattered gas pump inhabited by birds and rodents. They turned off onto a gravel secondary road, past the burnt-out shell of another filling station and a dilapidated roadside stand full of wind-blown trash. Overhead, a rusty traffic light swayed on a sagging wire. Someone had tied a big orange and black hex sign to one side of the light, and on the other side, the side facing away from town and out into the hostile world, was the evil eye, painted against a white background in vivid, shocking red. Things had gotten very strange during the last days. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. This episode is brought to you by AARP. 18 years from tonight, Grant Gill will become a comedy legend when he totally kills it at his improv class's graduation performance. Knees will be slapped, hilarity will ensue. That's why he's already keeping himself in shape and razor sharp today with wellness tips and tools from AARP to help make sure his health lives as long as he does. 
Because the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash healthy living. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Now, let's get back to our story. Williams was having trouble now, keeping up with John's ever-lengthening stride. And he decided that it was time to let him carry the bags. John hefted the bags easily, flashing his strong white teeth at Williams in a grin, and set off up the last long slope to camp, his long legs carrying him up the hill at a pace Williams couldn't hope to match. Williams swore, good-naturedly, and John laughed and stopped to wait for him at the top of the rise. Their camp was set well back from the road, on top of a bluff, just above a small river. There had been a restaurant here once, and a corner of the building still stood, two walls and part of the roof needing only the tarpaulin stretched across the open end to make it into a reasonably snug shelter. They'd have to find something better by winter, of course, but this was good enough for July, reasonably well-hidden and close to a supply of water. Rolling, wooded hills were around them to the north and east. To the south, across the river, the hills dwindled away into flat land, and the world opened up into a vista that stretched to the horizon. They grabbed a quick lunch and then set to work, chopping wood, hauling in the nets that Williams had set across the river to catch fish, carrying water for cooking up the steep slope to camp. Williams let John do most of the heavy work. John sang and whistled happily while he worked, and once, on his way back from carrying some firewood to the shelter, he laughed grabbed Williams under the arms, boosted him into the air, and danced him around in a little circle before setting him back down on his feet again. Feeling your oats, eh? Williams said with mock severity, looking up into the sweaty face that smiled down at him. Somebody has to do the work around here, John said cheerfully, and they both laughed. I can't wait to get back to my outfit, John said eagerly. I feel much better now. I feel terrific. Are we going to stay out here much longer? His eyes pleaded with Williams. We can go back soon. Can't we? Yeah, Williams lied. We can go back real soon. 
but already John was tiring. By dusk, his footsteps were beginning to drag, and his breathing was becoming heavy and labored. He paused in the middle of what he was doing, put down the wood-chopping axe, and stood silently for a moment, staring blankly at nothing. His face was suddenly intent and withdrawn, and his eyes were dull. He swayed unsteadily and wiped the back of his hand across his forehead. Williams got him to sit down on a stump near the improvised fireplace. He sat there, silently, staring at the ground in abstraction, while Williams bustled around, lighting a fire, cleaning and filleting the fish, cutting up dandelion roots and chicory crowns, boiling water. The sun was down now, and fireflies began to float above the river, winking like fairy lanterns through the velvet darkness. Williams did his best to interest John in supper, hoping that he'd eat something while he still had some of his teeth. But John would eat little. After a few moments... He put his tin plate down and sat staring dully to the south, out over the darkened lands beyond the river, just barely visible in the dim light of a crescent moon. His face was preoccupied and glum and beginning to get jowly. His hairline had retreated in a wide arc from his forehead, creating a large bald spot. He worked his mouth indecisively several times and at last said, Have I been ill? Yes, John, Williams said gently. You've been ill. I can't... I can't remember, John complained. His voice was cracked and husky, querulous. Everything's so confused, I can't keep things straight. Somewhere on the invisible horizon, perhaps a hundred miles away, a pillar of fire leapt up from the edge of the world. As they watched, startled, it climbed higher and higher, towering miles into the air until it was a slender column of brilliant flame that divided the sullen black sky in two from ground to stratosphere. The pillar of fire blazed steadily on the horizon for a minute or two and then it began to coruscate, burning green and blue and silver and orange, the colors flaring and flickering fitfully as they merged into one another. Slowly, with a kind of stately and awful symmetry, the pillar broadened out to become a flattened diamond shape of blue-white fire. The diamond began to rotate slowly on its axis, and as it rotated, it grew eye-searingly bright. Gargantuan, unseen shapes floated around the blazing diamond like moths beating around a candle flame, throwing huge, tangled shadows across the world. Something with a huge, melancholy voice hooted and hooted again. A 
forlorn and terrible sound that beat back and forth between the hills until it rumbled slowly away into silence. The blazing diamond winked out. Hot white stars danced where it had been. The stars faded to sullenly glowing orange dots that flickered away down the spectrum and were gone. It was dark again. The night had been shocked silent. For a while, that silence was complete. And then, slowly, tentatively, one by one, the crickets and tree frogs began to make their night sounds again. The war, John whispered. His voice was reedy and thin and weary now, and there was pain in it. It still goes on. The war got strange, Williams said quietly. The longer it lasted, the stranger it got. New allies, new weapons. He stared off into the darkness in the direction where the fire had danced. There was still an uneasy shimmer to the night air on the horizon, not quite a glow. You were hurt by such a weapon, I guess. Something like that. Maybe. He nodded toward the horizon, and his face hardened. I don't know. I don't even know what that was. I don't understand much that happens in the world anymore. Maybe it wasn't even a weapon that hurt you. Maybe they were experimenting on you, biologically, before you got away. Who knows why? Maybe it was done deliberately, as a punishment or a reward. Who knows how they think. Maybe it was a side effect of some device designed to do something else entirely. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe you just got too close to something like that when it was doing whatever it is it does. Williams was silent for a moment. And then he sighed. <sighs> whatever happened, you got to me afterward, somehow, and I took care of you. We've been hiding out ever since, moving from place to place. They had both been nearly blind while their eyes readjusted to the night, but now, squinting in the dim glow of the low-burning cooking fire, Williams could see John again. John was now totally bald. His cheeks had caved in, and his dulled and yellowing eyes were sunken deeply into his ravaged face. He struggled to get to his feet, then sank back down onto the stump again. I can't, he whispered. Weak tears began to run down his cheeks. He started to shiver. Sighing, Williams got up and threw a double handful of pine needles into boiling water to make white pine needle tea. He helped John limp over to his pallet, supporting most of his weight, almost carrying him. It was easy. 
John had become shrunken and frail and amazingly light, as if he were now made out of cloth and cotton and dry sticks instead of flesh and bone. He got John to lie down, tucked a blanket around him in spite of the heat of the evening, and concentrated on getting some of the tea into him. He drank two full cups before his fingers became too weak to hold the cup, before even the effort of holding up his head became too great for him. John's eyes had become blank and shiny and unseeing, and his face was like a skull, earth-brown and blotched, with the skin drawn tightly over the bones. His hands plucked aimlessly at the blanket. They looked mummified now, the skin as translucent as parchment, the blue veins showing through beneath. As the evening wore on, John began to fret and whine incoherently turning his face blindly back and forth, muttering random fragments of words and sentences, sometimes raising his voice in a strangled, gurgling shout that had no words at all in it, only bewilderment and outrage and pain. Williams sat patiently beside him, stroking his shriveled hands, wiping sweat from his hot forehead. Sleep now, Williams said soothingly. John moaned and whined in the back of his throat. Sleep. Tomorrow we'll go to the house again. You'll like that, won't you? But sleep now. Sleep. At last, John quieted. His eyes slowly closed and his breathing grew deeper and more regular. Williams sat patiently by his side, keeping a calming hand on his shoulder. Already, John's hair was beginning to grow back, and the lines were smoothing out of his face as he melted toward childhood. When Williams was sure that John was asleep, he tucked the blanket closer around him and said, Sleep well, Father and then slowly, passionately, soundlessly, he started to weep. Gardner Desois was not just a brilliant science fiction writer, but he was also an editor and edited a compendium of science fiction books that I've been reading for 30 years. These stories that Gardner collected in these collections, there are some 36 or 37 of them now. And these are the stories contained in in these books that really solidified my deep love for science fiction literature. 
um, this man has had a tremendous impact on my life, my taste in literature, my worldview. I will forever be in the debt of Gardner Dozois. Um, the man, in my view, is and always will be a giant of the genre. And um, may he rest in peace and power. Thanks, Gardner. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is the very best in the business, y'all, Julia Smith, and our assistant producer is Audrey No. Our editing and sound design is by Misha Stanton, and thanks to our consulting producer, Mr. Adam Dybert. Thank you to Craig Horlbeck for his engineering expertise on today's episode. Salute to you, Craig. And I want to thank the estate of Gardner Dozois for allowing me to read his story. You can find it in his collection entitled Morning Child and other stories available as an ebook from Bayon Books. Now, do you like the podcast? Perhaps a rhetorical question, but if you want to help other people find it, it's easy to do. Simply leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And while you're at it, leave me a story, a title, an author you'd like to hear on the podcast. I love hearing your suggestions. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Chris C.B. Bannon and Jenny Radelette of the Flying Radelette Sisters. I'm LeVar Burton, and you can find me on Twitter at LeVar Burton and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. And for the kids in your life, do check out LeVar Burton Kids Skybrary app with books and videos at LeVarBurtonKids.com. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.